0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM.
1: Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio powered by the Warren's School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, global CIO at WisdomTree. My co-host is Wharton finance professor, Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run. I also have Chris Gennady, global head of research here with me live on Wharton's campus. Uh, we're going to be talking about AI, the markets. Uh, but before we get to that, please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior economist to Wisdom Tree. Discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products and the views or guests are their own and not those of his affiliate affiliates. Very interesting show. Again, we're live on Wharton's campus with a former Wharton PhD student here now, Professor University of Florida Alejandro Lopez lira Welcome to Behind the Markets. Thank you for inviting me. Happy to be here. It's going to be great to have your take on asset pricing and some of your research on using AI to work on these kind of models. Uh, but Professor, you're you're calling in live from the Mediterranean, uh, live on a cruise, but you have some big takes on the markets uh, and we're going through earnings season. We'd love to get your updated views on what's happening.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you, uh, Jeremy. Um, you know, John... Maynard Keynes uh, was asked in the 30s about his view on the British economy, and he gave a view that differed from what he had in the past. And uh, the person he was talking to said, uh, Lord Keynes, uh, you've changed your opinion on this. And he said, Well, sir, when uh, the facts change, I change my opinion. What do you do, sir? <laughs> um, so, as All of you know, I have held the opinion that the Fed has tightened too much, and the risks of of, uh, recession are extremely high. Um, But I, too, look at all the facts. And uh, for reasons I'm going to give, um, I'm not going to give the Fed total uh, uh, reprieve from my criticism, but... Uh, they are not as tight as I had feared earlier. Um, uh, we really didn't have much data coming this week. The one data piece we did have just confirmed my shift of opinion. We had those jobless claims coming all the way back down to where they were earlier ago. That big increase that we saw in June seems to be wiped out. Now, not a sign of a super hot economy, but but certainly a, an economy that is uh, chugging along and most estimates of last quarter's GDP are in the two to two and a half percent uh, range. Um, so what 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 kind of shift am I talking about? What does this mean for uh, stocks and bonds? Um, I, I look at forward-looking indicators. One of the big indicators, of course, that I look at is the money supply. Um, and in fact, it was the uh, dramatic increase in the money supply that that led to my warnings of uh, rapid inflation in 2020, 2021 and 22. 2020. Uh, then all of a sudden the Fed slammed on the brakes. However, we have begun to see the money supply recovering. Last month, the money supply recovered. I look at weekly deposits. There looks like there are inflows. Infl- um, so it looks like the big declines in M2 money supply have at least temporarily come to an end. Secondly, and most very importantly, uh, housing prices, as you know, which were soaring during the money supply explosion and contracting when the money supply was contracted, have turned the corner. Now, I'm not going to say that's permanent, but uh, we've had a couple months of increase in the housing prices of both the FHA and the case shower. There are projections uh, for next week. uh, We get our monthly indicators that they will increase once again. Um, And thirdly, commodity prices. This is extremely important because they're very, very sensitive. Um, uh, The um, Bloomberg Commodity Index, which had plummeted all the way uh, down 20 25% into May, lower lows, highs that never reached it, have finally looked like they've reached bottom. And and, in fact, the lows now are not as low as we had early in May, and we also uh, have highs that look like they're being challenged higher. So this means that those three indicators are saying that the real rate uh, that the Fed is uh, and the projection path is not excessively high. As a result, um, I have revised my estimate of What I think real rates will settle down to, I had thought that the tips 10-year would go from one and a half, which it now is, to zero. I think it may only go down to 1%. Fed funds down to two and a half to three. First of all, the Fed will raise next week uh, a quarter point. Um, Is the Fed too tight? I would still say the downside risks outweigh the the upside risk, but not by as much as i had thought before um what does this mean for equities uh this is this is good news for equities because it means probability of recession is definitely down i think value stocks are basically priced for recession as you know selling for 15 16 17 times earnings um and uh, uh as a result if the recession risk is down they're apt to do much better um, now, uh, what, what, uh, so, so in a way the, it, it is actually good for equities, um, because recession risks are down and, um, it is not as good as it would be for, uh, bond holders as it would before. Why do I think that the current rate for bonds Real rate is going to be higher. Two reasons. Faster economic growth that may be spurred by AI, but also the impairment of the correlation and hedging ability of long bonds uh, is probably more serious than I had anticipated. So long bonds are not as good a hedge because whenever there's going to be inflation, the Fed is going to tighten. This means long bonds are not gonna be as attractive as hold hedges, which means a higher interest rate has to be both real and nominal has to be um, realized in order for that to happen. So those are the economic reasons why real rates my my forecast for real rates has gone up. My forecast for how tight the Fed is has actually gone down. Does that you know, does that mean maybe That I was overly concerned, yes, perhaps. Now, I was overly concerned of an overtightness. However, you know, as I said, always look at those forward indicators. That gives you the signal. I'm looking at those forward indicators, and they do not indicate the type of tightness that I had feared would happen before
1: very interesting we're going to go into what's your response we're going to go into the ai discussion here with alejandro but that's fascinating i mean it's it's uh we have been surprised that these higher rates have not bled into more of a slowdown and and you wonder why that it's been so it's an interesting view on these different factors that that can cause it um is is the interest rate sensitive sector so housing is a key part of it um Consumers have been collecting higher interest on their treasuries. They've been getting higher income. Is there is there other things of uh, how you think the economy has remained resilient? It's just these these the Fed's not as tight is one of the big big views because you think the real rates higher.
2: Yeah, I mean, in 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 essence, uh, yeah, you know, basically in essence, um, um, for instance, for for the homeowner, uh, the the homeowner uh, interest rates are higher, but but they see the value of an inflation hedge and how serious, uh, you know, and to be sure debt is good under those circumstances. The more you fear inflation, the more you're able to take this higher interest rate and down. Now it does mean, you know, your cash flow requirements are gone way up, but if you expect growing equity, you can borrow against it uh, into the future. Um, So uh, in a way, I think that that is important. Now one has to say, that most of the transactions in the housing market have been cash, not p- people giving up their two three percent mortgages. So it's it's been a very slow resale market. So we have to say case shower certainly has turned upward, but the standard error is relatively high. We will have to see if that continues or not. Again, it's not black. You know, it's not black or white. Um, you know, we're still onward looking. But uh, basically, I would say that. Um, uh... uh... you know bond holders are demanding higher rates because it's not as good a hedge and real growth is stronger and firms and individuals are willing to borrow given the stronger growth and the fact that uh... you know depression or recession which uh, means the burden of the debt is higher is not going to be as likely as it would before so they're willing to basically take on this debt of course who the loser is going to be federal government on all the debt it has cuz it pays those nominal and real interest rates it's going to be a the year of big losses for the federal reserve at the first time i think almost in its history because it's paying out a lot more on its reserves and it's collecting on its portfolio all that bleeds into the deficit although i don't think that that is a near term concern but you know the fed damaged the bonds damaged the ability of the bonds to be the hedge they're paying the cost Individuals are readjusting their portfolios and pricing accordingly, um, and uh, um, uh, we're, we're basically uh, seeing that in the marketplace. I, would, I do want to say one thing. We, we saw Thursday huge <laughs> growth collapse and, and value surge. Uh, that, that goes back to the old saying, you know, um, uh, up a staircase, down an elevator. When you have trending markets, And growth versus value is one of the most trending we've ever seen since the dot-com boom. Um, When it reverses, it reverses sharply. Now, normally, that's not a permanent reversal. Normally, it's a reversal, and then it goes back, and it has to reverse two or three times before the trend changes. so we're going to see if it fills the gap and, um, uh, you know, the growth stocks and continue on. That would not surprise me. I still think they're overvalued, definitely overvalued relative to the, the value stocks. Um, so it, it, was, yeah, it was Thursday, a turning point, um, not necessarily. The first break, the first it's a first crack. But for a strong trend to reverse, uh, you need more cracks than that foundation.
1: Next week is a big week for earnings. We've got uh, Microsoft, Google, Meta. It's a big week, and so very interesting. I was going to ask you: is, is this sort of now we have a no less chance for recession? Good for value over growth.
2: Very, very good to get your comments on that. Uh, well, yeah. we'll, well, I, I want to also say that we have that. We do have the the um, you know next week. Uh, we do get that money supply growth for the month, and we will, of course, get the case shower. For the month, and then of course the 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 foMC amounts, but this does mean tighter for longer um you know the 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 slowdown in the economy is not likely to be anywhere near as much as I had feared earlier on. Good for value. next week we will be back from the Mediterranean, or when's your cruise wrap up? Uh, yes, I will be back next week, so we'll be back in the Philadelphia area. we're going to Lisbon. Uh, and uh, spending a couple days there in two days, and uh, I'll be back by next Friday.
1: Very exciting! We'll talk to you again. Have a great rest of your vacation. Thanks for calling us in from the Mediterranean. Well, thank you, guys. We'll see you next week. we well, gonna turn our conversation to our guest here in the studio on Wharton, Wharton's campus, Alejandro Lopez Lira, PhD from Wharton, back on campus. Welcome again back to the studio.
0: Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm very happy to be here and. Uh... Having a nice conversation about fact models, uh, artificial intelligence, and anything related to, to finance.
1: And Chris, you flew up from Charlotte. Thanks for coming to the studio. Always a pleasure to be with you. Alejandro, tell us, well, for any, we're, we'll get into your background, what you focus on, but anything you heard from the professor, anything you want to comment on, his view of upgrading the economy based on AI, any thoughts on on what you heard from him?
0: I think the, um, it's going to be slow, the process of diffusing AI into the general economy. But, you know, we're always hopeful that uh, it will lead to an increase in productivity. You've been using it. Oh, I, it has improved my productivity a <laughs> lot. <laughs> but I don't know if that's true for most of the sectors in the economy.
1: Um, you, so, tell, so tell us, what did you study here at Wharton? Tell us a little bit about your what you've been, been working on.
0: Sure. I mean, I, I did like heavy asset pricing here at Wharton. Um, I was working with Nick, uh, with Jules, and with Joao and most of my research try to understand what drives that you know different assets have different expected returns like why is that right and uh, i at some point I, I decided that maybe one way to try to tackle this question is with new methods including machine learning and artificial intelligence so i was doing a little bit of uh, text analysis so part of my dissertation was like well, you know what? There's so many things happening in the economy that it's just very hard for us academics to characterize it. But maybe companies themselves like know better what are the things that are affecting them. So one of my earlier papers was like, OK, we know that all the companies are disclosing in their 10K annual reports all the risks that they're facing. right? If there was somehow a way to collect those risks from the textual information, uh, then maybe we could do like interesting stuff in there. So uh, that's when I discovered that, oh, apparently there's this field called machine learning and artificial intelligence that actually allows you to extract uh, from unstructured text uh, some nice relevant information, such as all of the risks that companies consider relevant. Right? Mm. And then I applied to say like, OK, maybe some of this risk will be systematic. Maybe some of this, will, this risk will not be priced. Um, and then I move on to other uh, more factor model, more asset pricing uh, kind of questions.
1: We heard the professor talk a little bit about growth in value, and that growth was kind of high multiples today, a little bit overvalued. What, what, what's your? You've done some research on the factors that the academics focus on. Let's let's talk about that as a state of finance, the factors that work. What what's been some of your work onto that that segment?
0: Yeah, happy to talk about that. So I have this uh, paper called Peer Review Theory Does Not Help Predict. Uh, The cross-section of expected return with Andrew Chen and Tom Zimmerman. And what we document is that, you know, there's a series of characteristics that academics have been pushing for a long time. That includes, for example, book to market or includes the size of the companies or even include like profitability of the company, right? But then there's other set of characteristics that potentially could predict uh, returns, but have not been exploited by academics, perhaps because of, you know, uh... Academics can only work in so many projects at a time, right? So what we did is in this paper was like, okay, let's compare the set of uh, academic signals relative to the universe of all possible reasonable uh, signals, which is constructed by taking, you know, combinations of financial ratios, combinations of past returns, uh, the standard data sets. And what we find surprising is that uh, if you look at the data carefully, it seems that for any given um, academic signal, for example, the book-to-market signal, there's hundreds of other signals that have similar expected return and similar statistical significance in, uh, represented by the t-statistic. right? Uh, so we found that surprising. Not only that, like if you follow the sample carefully and you look at when the, the sample of the original papers ends, you find that there's a huge decline going forward after a signal gets discovered. But interestingly enough, this decline also happens for the signals that were not discovered. So it's almost as if Markets are realizing at the same time as academics that there are some signals with predictive power, and they're trading on them. And you know, while hedge funds are trading on those signals, academics are writing papers about it.
1: They're all so correlated. They're
0: all correlated. Yes.
1: What do, What do you think about this price to book value factor? Is Is that a good one? Is it? Uh, <laughs> do you believe in
0: value, or are you more an AI? Growth tech person, what do you think? I, I think the theory of value is great, right? Like in, in principle, if you can assess correctly the value of a company, and you see that the price is different than that, you should definitely buy that, right? But the trick is like what is, the price is the, to book the right, right metric? Is, is, is it the correct measure? And obviously, you know, with the rise of intangibles, there's a lot yes. of uh, tricky things going in there. Like, how do you quantify like? you know, these AI capabilities, right? Like, if you if you look at, like, Google balance sheet, you're not going to find BART in there, their latest AI. But I'm pretty sure that it's an important asset. So it's, it's not clear, you know, there's been a ton of research related to that, that uh, Bookbald is capturing it well, that assets is capturing it well. So we may need um, to move on to maybe some more f- sophisticated measures uh, of value. Capitalizing R and D is one of those topics that you know. So the the,
1: the 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 academic literature talks about this intangible asset question. That yeah, you expense marketing, you expense plants and equipment, or, or no, you ca- for for a plant you capitalize it. So you mm-hmm. put it this asset on your balance sheet, and then you deduct it to depreciate it over five year period of life. But research and development, you don't. So that Bard is an example where they were spending money. money- unbarred year after year and it's an
0: asset but it doesn't show up to your point exactly so it, it will definitely not be captured by traditional measures of uh, you know fundamental value but of course if you had a great measure of fundamental value and you see that the price is different that has to mechanically predict like uh, high high expected returns
1: are, are there factors that you like the best of, if, of, of through your work of all of discovering all these factors seeing what people publish on what do
0: you believe in I believe that it's better to mix them up. So you, there's little reason to restrict yourself to one signal. If you have many, many informative signals, could be value, could be size, could be your own proprietary measures of intangibles relative to price, or, or, or uh, whatever else you think it's, it's interesting. Uh, it's a good idea to combine those measures. So you know, and that's the promise of machine learning. It basically tells us, give us an interesting data set where we can find interesting patterns. And machine learning is going to automatically summarize that information to you and give you the best measure of expected returns. So that's that's obviously unbiased, uh, but that's my line of reasoning. Like The more information that you can get, and especially if you can diversify that source of information, the more you'll be able to make uh, better choices.
1: Chris, jump in here. So... I'm not the only one here.
3: I I was curious, uh, you know, in thinking of the recent time period, because, of course, the professor was on. We're talking about a much higher interest rate environment for, say, the last 12 to 18 months. But prior to that, we were sitting basically from 09 to 2022, give or take, at more or less zero. And I'm I'm just curious because you could make the argument essentially... Buying the Nasdaq during that period of time was was perfectly fine, perfectly reasonable. The market did what it did. So if you're if you're looking at the performance of factors, do you have to account for extreme changes in say a given interest rate regime and how that could affect uh, the
0: picture? Yes, definitely. In in fact, there's very interesting research here at, at Wharton doing, being done by Jules, uh, one of my co-authors too, and my advisor back in the PhD days, uh, where he shows that if you invested back in the days in bonds with very very long term duration like duration that matches the market's duration you basically would have done as much money in terms of expected return with lower volatility so most of the you know uh, inter- interest rate changes drive a lot of the variation in in uh, in asset prices and in returns um now i normally try to stay away from aggregate uh, from the aggregate market pred- prediction because it's extremely hard right uh, i prefer uh, predicting cross-sectional, like which companies are going to be doing better than other, because in some sense, you you kind of like catch the big macroeconomic fluctuations. But yeah, if you're considering especially any type of long factors, interest rate must be uh, a, a very important issue that you must consider.
3: And then thinking on, on the short term, because there is this sort of argument or debate that the market correctly accounts for new information at, at a certain speed a certain very high speed or else it would be very easy to trade and so if if you're you know going through and doing your research and you see say the meme stock situation occur where you you've got something sort of intriguing going on it's almost like a behavioral psychology thing going on is is that something where you'd say okay th- that's a bit outside of any Factors, or are there factors or things at work there that maybe maybe I just may not know, but ultimately, it, it is representing something uh, worthwhile or or something that we can learn from in uh, these behavioral trends.
0: No, absolutely. I mean the the there's usually um, uh, we use the word factor indiscriminately both for characteristics of predict returns and for uh, you know systematic variations within the within the stock. So you can definitely incorporate for example some kind of like you know retail sentiment measure or like retail holding data that would probably predict like this kind of like meme stocks like you know how much uh is 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 the position being at, like how how, my, how many uh, lendable shares are they ordered to short for example or those kind of like variables uh this will not be factors in iteration sense because they will not be driving the uh, variation of most stocks. is just specific characteristics that will predict returns. So I, I think it, it's 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 a very good idea to try to think about the difference between characteristics that help you predict returns and factors that are driving the covariation between all of these uh, companies. So, you know, for example, interest rate would be one of these large factors that when interest rate moves, everything moves. Whereas, you know, these... Uh, a specific firm information such as the share of like retail investors and how many uh, shares institutional lending uh, institutions hold uh, those may be more characteristics that are better at predicting the specific uh, information so you, you kind of have to mix it up in, in, in uh, to make it practical
3: w- when you think of the the techniques that you employ because you, you mentioned obviously machine learning and we're going to talk a bit about AI would would certain techniques within machine learning and AI, Work a bit better for the bigger factors, or sort of the more short. Because there's there's sort of a time horizon. It could be a few seconds. It could be a few minutes. It could be a day. It could be we could be talking about something that plays out over ten years. And so, what what are some of the differences in techniques that you might have to employ if you're if you're looking at a big versus a, a very short term factor?
0: Yeah, that's a very interesting question. So the the general rule is, machine learning works and artificial intelligence works better if you have more data. Right? That means that it works better at much shorter horizons just because you have so many more observations. Whereas if you're trying to predict you know, the aggregate market like 30 years from now, like we have very few observations of 30-year spirits on the market. If you do not have uh, a lot of data points, then it's usually not advisable to use machine learning. And what you want is a more structured approach. Right. So whenever we consider like about economic models or economic theory, we're trying in some sense to put them... Uh, some prior, some uh, kind of like model in the background that helps us do estimates without that much data. So in in short, it's like, yes, like machine learning works so much better in the short term, just because there's huge amounts of data. And because of that, you know, again, it's easier to predict how different companies are going to do relative to each other, rather than how the aggregate economy of the US is going to be. So you've
1: written a paper on using ChatGBT to pick stocks, and and you've done a lot of work on that. Let's go to, as you think about where you said having a lot of data is useful. So let's think about, and you talked about some of the other factor model work you did. As you thought about approaching ChatGBT, which has caught the world by by fire in many ways, how did you think about what ChatGBT could be good at versus what academic quant factor models could be good at, and the considerations in setting up the research project itself?
0: Right, uh, that's a that's a very deep question. So um, you know, ChatGPT took me also by surprise. That's why I wanted to to write the paper. Uh, the interesting thing is that it's not really trained for anything other than to uh predict text well you know to give it like the beginning of a sentence and it can predict the next word accurately and uh to give nice answer to people you know that's that. that's kind of the training so one of the questions we had is like okay does this thing know like any finance at all like it could be the case that no this thing's completely useless right and that that uh gives us a question like uh what is it what we're trying to do when we process information so some things where chatgpt has a huge advantage is in processing any textual information like, it would just do it as well as, uh, let's say, like a, at that undergrad level of accuracy. So, you know, if mm-hmm. if it's something like uh, reading reports of companies, I don't think there's any better algorithm to try to understand uh, the impact of that. Just because, you know, the previous uh, machine learning methods or other less, uh, more econometric, more structured approach cannot handle uh, textual data, textual information that well. And of course, you know, if you live in a world where, a lot of uh, news are arriving very, very fast. Uh, it's just gonna take us t- t- too much time as humans to go through all the information, right? Like it's just, it's just hard for me. Like even if I'm there all day, like reading news, I may be able to get like let's say 200 letters If you have like some kind of software in place that's doing this automatically, it can just uh, basically process an arbitrary amount of information.
1: Right, and brilliant. So it's good at because it's not just a numbers game here. We're not just like, Hey, what are the price to earnings ratios or the dividend yields? Or this is taking news presentations, stories, analysts, Upgrade, whatever.
0: Yes, uh, in, in in fact, it's actually bad with numbers. Uh, that's that's one of the funny things. That like if you try to multiply two large numbers in ChatGPT, it's gonna give you two like wrong answers. If you're trying to tell it uh, run a linear regression without any plugins, uh, just the base model, it's also gonna fail miserably. Like it's just not going to do, doing. Uh, it's not good at doing math. The same way that if I don't have like a computer, I cannot you know <laughs> run math very heavily. So it's it's kind of like. Uh, funny and scary because it's good at tasks that humans uh, without a computer are good at. So, you know, understanding like uh, whether a given uh, financial news is good or bad. That was the objective of our research and uh, I assume it would be very good at that and uh, we actually haven't put this in the paper but we ask it, for example, you have a given headlines. Let's say, like, company X increases its dividends, right? Is this headline good or bad? Like, if you ask me, I would say, like, well, that's normally a good signal, right? It depends on whether it was expected or not, but can be nuances. But if you just, said like, give me that information, like, say, so like, okay, this seems like good news, right? Um, if you ask it for an explanation uh, uh, to chat GPT, it would say, so like, yeah, you know, generally speaking... Uh, increasing a dividend you know by an unexpected amount is usually good news and will forecast good stock prices uh, in the in the short term and those kind of answers are just pervasively like everywhere like let's say if it was a student i would just give an a in every single answer like it it's full of economic theory and it's full of economic theory because it has basically digested all of these books digested all of this uh, economic information digested past news and you know can basically speak speak finance language like as good as it can speak english language mm. So now, in term when you do in, in finance worlds, you, you're going to set up a
1: product or an index or something, you often do a back test, you know, and you run these simulations, you go historically, you've got all these data, crisp here, words, you know, the Wharton Research Data Service has all sorts of data in there that you could run all sorts of models on. What was unique about trying to test ChatGBT in a back test versus the data that you normally get?
0: Yeah, I guess the hardest thing was that um, ChatGPT was trained with knowledge of the, up until September 2021. So, if you try to do any backtesting beforehand, you run the risk that ChatGPT just memorized all of this information. So, we cannot really do credible backtesting before that period. So, normally, you know, the more data you have, the better. Like, I would like to have like six years of data, but with these kind of like new models that know the basically the whole history of the world as part of their training uh, you really have to be careful with that so i think the biggest challenge was we were working with a very short sample so just let me talk briefly about the study what we did is like you know we pass a universe of headlines every day and we ask for each headline whether it was good or bad and you know best if it's good you invest in that company if it's bad you don't invest in that company That's or short the, the company or short the company yeah sorry uh, if it's bad you would short the company right uh, depending on the portfolio and uh, what we did is like, OK, the knowledge cutoff is September 2021, so we only actually have data from October uh, 2021 up until December 2022, 20, uh, because we were on the study back in April, and CRISPR uh, is, is not real-time data. So, so we had to wait a little bit to run, to run more numbers. Um, so if you have a very short horizon, as I was uh, uh, telling you earlier, the best you can do is high frequency because that just gives you a higher number of observations. Now that's not going to tell you anything about the long-term returns of these companies. Uh, it's it's very important to note that we're only asking about the short-term return, right? And we can only assess the impact of the short-term short-term uh, returns. Now the interesting news is that it was actually surprisingly good. Not only surprisingly good, uh, but it was also profitable because this was a very hard test. Like it's a very hard test to predict the market because it could be that you know, like sure. And increasing dividends is, it's good for the company in general, but maybe the market already prices information the millisecond it came out, right? And then there's no way to, to exploit it, and then ChatGPT would like do well. Uh, turns out that for reasons that I think are related to transaction costs and limits to arbitrage, there's still some return predictability left at the daily horizon. Uh, now that means that you know uh, basically the information from like news gets like at most one day to be incorporated into the stock price, uh, maybe a little bit less. Um, And this is especially strong for smaller companies and on negative news. So that probably means that, you know, investors have a hard time like shorting smaller companies. And that's why the information gets uh, delayed, uh, incorporated incorporated into the prices. Very interesting. So
1: in terms of the magnitude of that that short impact, is is there any numbers you can give us in terms of how much the short companies underperform versus the positives outperform?
0: Yeah, so roughly, uh, I'm I'm rounding up a little bit. It's like negative companies on on the bad news will have like forty basis uh, points, like uh, negative returns, and the good news would have like let's say fifteen basis points. So it is a big asymmetry. And this is we're talking about outperformance versus the, how are you, when, when you think about
1: sort of that negative 40 and positive 15 is it, versus what benchmark, what do you think oh, about those?
0: Just, just, just against zero. So like in, on average, if a company has a good news, it will get like 40, uh, sorry, if a company has a good news, it will gain like 50 basis points uh, during the next day. If it has bad news, it would get uh, minus 40 basis points uh, during the next day. And we're not real, you know, within a short horizon the average return is very, very, very close to zero because the daily mm-hmm. returns are very small. So these are these are large numbers that get compounded quickly. Now they're also not huge numbers. So if your transaction c- costs are on the order of like 40 basis points uh, with shorting and etc., it's just impossible to take advantage of this opportunity. That's why I think it's more related to. It's not that the markets are inefficient. It's just that it's just very costly to short some very small companies. Something interesting that we find is that. Smaller stocks are roughly three times as predictable as larger stocks. So these numbers are, you know, it's going to be like something like 60, minus 60 basis points for um, bad news for smaller companies. And it's going to be something like minus uh, 20 for large companies. Mm. Talk a little bit more about that
1: literature, the research on that. If people have studied that a bit. Um, maybe sort of talk with anything else on, on just this constraints of shorting that makes these opportunities for people.
0: Yeah, so something that I found that's pervasive across any prediction, like all of my research about predicting stock returns. And there's this funny pattern that you always observe that smaller stocks are way easier to predict regardless of the method. Now, the reason I think that's happening is mostly because their cost is costlier to trade. So, you know, it's less worth for like really large hedge funds to trade on these smaller stocks just because they would have a they would have a high price impact mechanically. Like if you have like 60 billion billion under management, you cannot really go around and like buy smaller stocks like randomly. Like it's just it's just not going to work. And, you know, the consequence of that is that um, just mechanically, the transaction costs are going to make it. Harder to trade any smaller stocks just because there's less volume. Uh, you have a higher price impact, and uh, you additionally have the short side constraint that not only not only like you're gonna have price impact, but you also get the fact that some of these smaller companies are harder to borrow because there's fewer institutional investors holding them. Right? That's gonna make you. That's gonna make your transaction costs higher. Um, Via both the price impact and the lending fee, if you are able to lend these stocks at all. So let's let's take that you said right before the break: the small stocks
1: who were bad headlines were declining sixty basis points. If you had to guesstimate, you know, how much price impact from shorting it, and then how much it costs you to short to borrow, do you have a, a, a guesstimate how much those costs from the price impact and the Borrow eats away, and which one is bigger—the transaction cost or the, the shorting cost? Uh, the,
0: the 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 price impact is going to depend on your on your uh, definitely on your, your asset management. But like, if you're at a large uh, fund, like you know, transaction costs are going to eat away all of the sixty basis points. If you're a smaller one, you may be able to get away with like maybe ten basis points out of that, and then uh, it's up it's up uh, it, it's going to be just the the pure transaction cost. Well, at what at what volume level? Do you get concerned?
1: So you said a large fund versus hey. So what is a large fund for this type of opportunity size? And not not this, but it just in think in general.
0: Yeah, I would say a large fund is roughly like. I'm the, okay. I'm I'm not ready for these uh, <laughs> specific numbers, but let's say anything about like. 5, 10 billions would probably have a very hard time trading, trading the strategy. You know, the, <laughs> I have to, to make the claim that the, the, this is a research paper, right? I wanted to see what are the limits of like ChatGPT. This is not exactly the best way you would go about implementing these kind of strategies because by design, for example, it has an extremely high turnover. Like just going to eat away like everything. Like we're balancing the portfolio daily and we're doing that because we're not trying to optimize the portfolio formation. We're ra- rather trying to assess whether this technology is capable or not of, of predicting returns. And so far so good, but you're also an entrepreneurial guy. These things happen. There
1: may be opportunities to create something that invests in this. Um, so that
0: seems like something you're going to want to do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. If, if there's a, if there's a way to, to, to invest this, I'll, I'll be, I'll be happy to, but you know, th- there's a lot of more, uh, portfolio management involved, uh, rather than the base signal. You know, I can, I can see that there will be a long road ahead, uh, For that, like, but you know, so it's one thing to get like good predictive signals, and then it's another different thing to implement them. Both parts are extremely hard, especially with these high turnovers, and especially with these uh, high transaction costs. But it's it's to me super interesting that at least um, these kind of tools are able to assess sentiment very well. And if you think a little bit about it, that's you know that's mostly what at least how I would like to trade, right? Like if I'm day trading, which I shouldn't do because I don't have any advantage relative to hedge funds, but if I decide to day trade for fund, uh, what I would do is mostly I would take a look at the news, take a look at the price and decide like, okay, maybe there's like good news today about artificial intelligence or interest rates. How is this going to impact the economy, right? And uh, it turns out that's exactly the kind of uh, behavior that we can replicate with these kind of models because, you know, it's mostly... Um, logical thinking based on on previous knowledge, which is what these kind of models now surprisingly, uh, we live in very weird times, are able to do.
3: One of the notable things to consider is a year ago we didn't have this this tool. So ChatGPT and and GPT-4, the sort of next version, it it really just represents a new tool in the toolkit that can can take this concept of sentiment that's been around For many years, and look at it in a new way with uh, the advantage of a lot more data, a lot quicker. So, you then say, okay, it's not the only model. You have Bard, which connects to the internet, Google's sort of version. You have Facebook Meta talking a lot about their open source uh, Llama model. And you know they're just going to keep being more and more of these models. So, so I'm just curious, if, if you're sitting there thinking of the tools that you might like to, to see, are, are there advantages to being fully connected to the internet? Or, or you were saying before, maybe there are disadvantages because it already knows all the share prices. It's, it's sort of interesting to just consider the, these are the tools that are available today. There may be newer, better ones even uh, tomorrow.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's obviously a big advantage to be connected uh, with the internet because you have the latest information. For example, uh, September 2021 was a long time. So back then we were still having a lot of COVID problems, right? So that's the the knowledge cut up. So it may give answers based on that. Uh, The problem, again, is if you are connected to the internet, if you want to do a serious backtesting, you actually have to, you know, start today and wait like two years <laughs> and then see the performance. And by that point, you know, how. who knows how the world is is going to look. Um, so there's kind of like a trade-off uh, there that's interesting between having the latest information and having and being able to do a longer backtesting period. Now, my prediction is that, you know, uh, competition is only going to get higher in this space. And at some point, uh, finance is kind of like boring because, you know, if you ask me what's the outcome is going to be, it's like, well, you know, probably it just happens that uh, information is going to get incorporated into prices much more quicker. So if before it took a day, maybe you know next year it's going to take an hour, and maybe two years from now, from now it's going to take a minute, and then you're going to be competing with high frequency trading. So in in, in some sense, this is a lesson that uh, you know uh, markets are uh, markets are nice at incorporating information, and uh, what they do whenever a new technology comes up is like they just compete it away.
3: What I personally wonder is we have this sort of intersection of the human beings. And the nice thing about the human beings is frequently they can tell you a story. They can give you, it may not be correct, but they can give you a hypothesis as to why a factor might exist, why a certain behavior might be a certain way. And obviously artificial intelligence, it's it's taking in a lot more data. It's doing it a lot faster. But one of the the weaknesses and the challenges I find when, when I'm trying to explain a strategy that might be getting run by AI is how is it, how, how do I clearly tell the story of why it's doing what it's doing so that people could decide whether or not they have confidence in whether, because obviously they can look at one paper, one research effort, maybe it looks good, but that doesn't obviously guarantee that it's going to keep ultimately working. So this idea of explainability to me seems to be one of these, uh, Areas of further interesting uh, study.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of work to be done in the in the machine learning field with explainability. Now, the nice thing about the large language models like ChatGPT is they're explainable by design. So, some interesting experiment we did that's not in 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 any of the papers, but out of these other you know signals that are similar to book to market, but they're not book to market. We tried some fun exercise of like creating a story around it because we we found things. For example, it was something like. Uh, change in property, plant, and equipment divided by book value or some variable related like that, right? if if you push me hard, I can think of a model on why would what you know why that's working. But if you ask ChatGPT to create like you tell it like, you know, I have this variable, it predicts high expected returns, give me like an economic story of why, it will give you, and it will give you a convincing why one. The problem is like if you ask it like, okay, how the signal is predicting negative returns, it will also give you a good story. <laughs> right? So the question is like, how do we test the stories? Like that's the that's the crucial answer. And you know, the problem is that if you think the Machine learning models are too flexible. Stories are way more flexible. <laughs> like the space of stories is like infinite. Like give me like whatever variable you have, and if you are not testing my story, I can just make something up for it. <laughs> and that and and you think that happens in finance
1: where we see a result and then we try to make up a story?
0: <laughs> yes, I mean it. it it's it's it has to right. Like we'd like to study interesting things, so we only study them after they happen, right? So almost by construction, we we're limited by the. <laughs> past and the present uh that's it's, it's a little bit annoying but you know we have to wait until something interesting happens in order to explaining there's you know occasionally we do things like we're going to predict things that no one has happened and maybe it will come out but then you need to wait like 10 years to see if, if it realized and then usually people don't want to don't want to publish those papers well let, let me
1: get your gut check i know you say you like to use these models and uh to, to, if you were to do a day trading and you like to do the cross-section more so than the, the macro. But will try to combine things to, to force you to a view. Hot takes. Respond to Siegel's view that tech is overvalued based on all this recent trend. What do you think about this, this buzz through AI, this AI excitement that we're talking here? You're using it for real academic research. Is it making these stocks too
0: expensive? Yeah. So like on the top of my mind, uh, you know, the, the the very, very large, uh, like NVIDIA seems like, you know, it has a price earnings ratio that's uh, astronomical right now. Um, so, or even price to sales ratios, Yeah, 40 times trailing, 20
1: times forward. I'm working on a study to say, once you get to that size, what is your probability of success? Let me tease it out here. In the <laughs> next year, 80% go on to underperform. Over the next three years, Ninety percent go on to underperform.
0: Yes, personally, I like to buy like uh, uh, companies with low multiples because you know uh, it gets tricky. Now, um, I mean, there are two ways to look at this. One way is like fundamental investing. So, from a fundamental investing perspective, I do not recommend it. But if you think the hype is going to go larger, you know, this year or the next year, and your 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 uh, trading horizon is this year or the next year. It may be a good bet, right? Like it, yeah. it's kind of like, but at this point it's like betting on Bitcoin, like sure, Bitcoin may go up like this year. Like, I don't know. Um, that, that's, it, it's interesting you say that because actually w- what we found was, right, if you look in the
1: 500 largest stocks, NVIDIA is now the largest price to sales of all those stocks. And actually when you find that there's been, I think the last six, 60 years, there's almost been about 100 companies who've come to be the largest price to sales stock in the market. The next year, on average, they actually outperform. So like once they get to the highest, the momentum continues, but then it's a disaster. And so you've
0: probably got another six months, this crystal ball, and then it becomes a little challenge. Let let me put it like this. If you are betting on on NVIDIA, you should have like extremely good risk management and you should be ready to withdraw your moment the millisecond You know, tanks. Uh, But your
1: chat GBT is going to identify it, and it's going to be out before anybody else. So how do you time the exit?
0: No, that's why. That's why like cross-sectional strategy is better than uh, you know aggregate because you know, okay, like if you put like zero point five percent of your portfolio in Nvidia, it's probably going to be fine. Like even if it uh, underperforms extremely or it has negative returns, it's probably not going to cause a large impact. So you know, on average, you're doing well. But again, the, the important thing is that. I really like to diversify extremely. So if I could, I would just have like 10,000 companies, uh, long 10,000 companies short, so as to not have like any market exposure uh, whatsoever. I, I don't have 10,000 companies to invest, and I personally cannot process the information for 10,000 companies. So I would need to to start a fund doing that. The the ability to short
1: stuff is, an interest, is, is another thing that you think people don't do enough of this long short stuff.
0: Yes, so I, I have a very uh, strong uh, position on this because you know, uh do you really wanna be exposed to the aggregate market? Like do you really wanna be exposed to the interest rate fluctuations? Stocks for the long run. Siegel's a big long-term stock guy. Yeah, and, th- and then if you are if you're in there for the long run, I I think it's fine. Um but I, I, I don't know. I don't I don't like the There's economic fluctuations within within uh within one year. Like I don't I don't wanna guess how the macroeconomic is gonna macroeconomy is gonna be doing like next year, just because we don't have enough data points, right? And I can come up with a story, but how do I test that story? So I in my mind it's like just part of diversifying. Like you know, the the, the next step of diversifying across multiple stocks is like basically not having any market risk. So that's that's my strong position. Now I know this is extremely hard and impossible for a lot of institutions, but if you're able to be one of the lucky ones to have like no market exposure and have like good expected returns, that would be great.
1: Huh? Well, how much do you have to give up to get that hedge characteristic, you think?
0: Not a lot. So I, I have this other uh, research paper uh, with uh, Nick Rusanov uh, here at Wharton. And what we show is that, you know, it, it's well known that market exposure does not get that compensated, right? Like you cannot make large amounts of money by betting on stocks with high market exposure, high market beta, and shorting stocks with low market exposure, with low market beta. Like your returns, not even your risk adjusted returns, your returns will be like close to zero or negative. Like it's just very hard to to do that. So, uh, turns out that's also the case. That's what we do in the research for any systematic factor, in the sense that factors that are driving the joint variation, the movement of uh, stock returns. We also find that it's not really priced. So, you're not really getting compensated for this exposure. Like, anytime you're investing in a strategy and you don't think carefully on what your exposures are you're not going to get compensated for that, right? And the mechanical reason is that if no one cares uh, about whether they're being compensated or not, then they're not going to be compensated.
1: Hmm. There's some portfolio construction implications of this conversation that uh, we're not going to finish in three minutes, which is a countdown clock here. Chris, final questions, thoughts for Alejandro.
3: No, it's, I mean, it's uh, it's been incredible to be able to, to speak. Uh, you, you had me thinking about Warren Buffett and sort of the trade-off and whether whether he's, because he's obviously been compensated. And I tend to wonder, is it market exposure? Is he valuing the companies correctly? Or is it time, meaning he's willing to hold the companies forever?
0: Yeah, no, for sure. And we also live in wonderful times where interest rates were declining True. consistently True. for a long time. So that certainly helped with the market valuation. Is that going to go on again? I, I, I don't know. That's the That's a tricky situation.
1: Well, it was interesting to hear Siegel's view to start the show that, you know, he was thinking real rates were going back down below 1%. Now he's thinking the tips race doesn't have as much to decline. That was an interesting view on correlation of stock bonds being a little bit higher. What are the next – we didn't really get into all the questions you are going to be focused on – Where can people keep up with all your work uh, and the best to stay up to date with you?
0: Yeah, uh, sure. They can follow me at AlejandroLL10 in Twitter. Or they can look at uh, my academic website and contact me by email. All my all my data is there. All my papers are there. Everything is public. And I ran into you
1: at the Econ Twitter and real life conference here in in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You came. You were,
0: you participated there. You enjoy the social media interactions. Oh God, yes! It's so good to meet finally in person. Like you know, I was also so tired of every conference being done online. It's so good to be in person. It's so good to be in person here, uh, recording the podcast. Uh, it's it's so much nicer. But
1: well, we appreciate you coming to your old stomping grounds here at Warren to do this. And good to see you on Twitter and uh, you know, traveling to these conferences is a good shout to that. Chris, thanks for helping us here live in the studio. The other Chris, thanks for coming up. We have our intern Charlotte here with us. You've been listening to Behind the Markets here on SiriusXM 132. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy Schwartz.